Andy Wall was meant to be speaking today, but Andy is unwell. Aww. I know, and, and uh, he, I mean, he was desperate. He said, I really want to preach today, but I just, I've got flu. And he, I think he was worried that as well as imparting something spiritual, he might impart <laughs> something else as well. So he's at home in bed, and I thought rather than try and preach his message, I'm going to just talk about some other things today instead. So um, here's what I want to say to you today. God is about a great work. He's about a great work in your life. He's about a great work in this church. He's about a great work in the church in Edinburgh. He's about a great work in his church worldwide. He's doing truly remarkable things around the world. And I was reminded of that scripture from Philippians 1 verse 6 where Paul says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful that the Apostle Paul was just dead confident. Whenever he met a Christian, he thinks, you know what, there's something good going on here. I know where this is going. It's going one way. It's going towards being with God forever, and God's work at your life is progressing. It is, and you might feel uh, in a place of discouragement today. You might have a lot of other things going on in your life, but this is the truth. God is at work in your life. And our response to that is obviously one of, yes, Lord. (laughs) If God's saying, I'm confident that my work in your life will succeed, then our correct response isn't just, well, sounds great, I'll just sit down there and put my feet up. The correct response is to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, please work at me, work in me for your glory. And God is encouraging us to believe him more. And what I want to look at today from the book of Nehemiah is just some things around the area, you might call it spiritual warfare. Things that the enemy would use to try and distract and disable the work of God in your life to stop that from coming to completion. But what I want you to know at the start is this, that God wins. God always wins in his battles, and he wins in your life. But we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and he will lead us in victory in these battles. Um, We've just come out of a week of prayer the other week, and uh, Mary painted this remarkable picture for us, um, a prophetic picture which actually ties in with a lot of other words we've had over the last couple of years about coming into a season of answered prayer, about breakthrough. And she felt this verse from Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And just this picture of us as a community, that's us, our community being united, but then God breaking a hole in our church walls, as it were, to actually help us to reach this world and this city that God has called us to serve and minister to. And it's yet another encouragement. I think it's almost like God was saying, you've heard it so many times, I'm going to paint you a picture this time, just to make sure you keep hearing this message. And to get through to that place of breakthrough, we're going to need to fight the fight of faith. And the wonderful thing is that God is already giving us breakthrough. Um, so uh, I was thinking of three things earlier this year, um, that we, just in September gone, we, we were meeting as one church in one meeting on a Sunday morning, 
and then we launched into two different things at the same time. We planted a church in West Lothian with 30 people. Do you know last Sunday they had 62 people there on Sunday morning? And I, th- I mean, Dave Hill reckoned they had like 20 nationalities or something. I couldn't believe that, but that, that, that was amazing. God, he, I mean, that, what, what percentage growth rate is that? That's about 100%, isn't it? In uh, four months, it's not bad going. God is doing a good thing. And at the same time, we said, you know what, we, we're committed to gathering more people here in Edinburgh, different diverse communities, people who don't come to a Sunday morning, who might come to a Sunday evening. So we started a Sunday evening service. And that's been regularly gathering 65 to 70 people. And in that process, God's called us to stretch. So we've seen um, gaps in leadership. Do, do you remember when worship used to be the face of Luke Renshaw, those of you who've been here a couple of years? You know, that cool guy on the guitar just closed his eyes, led us in worship. And do you remember when uh, our stewarding team used to be led by Dave Hill? He was the face of stewarding. Some of you don't even know who these guys are. Because actually God has given us not just one stewarding team leader, but now two in Alan and Dav for the morning and the evening. And, I mean, George just seems to have worship leaders coming out of his ears these days. I don't know what that guy does. He's, got, he's, he's kind of giving people something in their food or something. But he, he seems remarkable at raising up other worship leaders. God is doing a good thing. And um, uh, just a, a total aside, but on the Student 20s weekend, uh, Daniel Goodman, who's a friend, was visiting to preach on that weekend away. And, and in the car on the way up there, he was saying, how's Kings going? And I said, well, you know, full of challenges, you know, because God's stretching us out. We're doing all these different new initiatives. And, and I said, you know... Gosh, I mean, we gave three of our best worship leaders away to West Lothian, and, and you know, we're, so we're struggling a little bit. And then at the end of the weekend, he, he said to me, he said, well, you know, he said, I, I sat through four of your worship times, and they were all brilliantly led by four different worship leaders. And he was all looking at me as if to say, what is your problem? <laughs> see, see, when we give away, God increases. And when we stretch, God fills in the gaps. Uh, remarkable diversity that God's building into us. Um, on that stage today, we had somebody from Trinidad, somebody from Ireland, somebody from Nigeria. God's doing that in Kings again and again, increasing our diversity of nationality and types and demography and all those things. And he's also increasing our appetite to see many people who are far away from God brought near to him and to see people who need help in our city being served by the people of God. He's doing a really, really amazing thing here. So we want to keep fighting this fight of faith, keep believing God for more. And I've got five really quite simple lessons from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is my go-to book. Um, when somebody says, hey, just preach about something. I, I mean, it's funny, Julie came in from the academy yesterday, our leadership training school, and I'd been mulling about it since Andy said that he wasn't going to be able to preach. And I thought, well, what should I preach about? And I, when Julie came in, I said, I think I'm going to preach from Nehemiah. And she smiled. She said, uh-huh. <laughs> she said, funnily enough, she said, in Academy today, she said, I was in a discussion group with Carrie Tench. And she said, she said, and she said it's interesting you should say that. She said, because Carrie Tench actually quoted something you said about the book of Nehemiah in our discussion group today. So clearly, I can go on and on about this stuff all the time. But anyway, so... Um, Nehemiah was an exile from Jerusalem. He, he lived under the king of Persia. He was winebearer to the king. He was a, a prominent official, uh, very well respected. And here's the thing I love about Nehemiah is he was a very practical guy, very pragmatic, but he had a deep passion for God. He had a, an amazing prayer life. 
Uh, the book starts with him talking about being in the rainy season, and everybody else is talking about the weather. He's talking about God, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's asking people about the state of Jerusalem, where he'd come from. And he said, has Jerusalem been rebuilt yet, which was synonymous with the glory of God, the kingdom of God coming on the earth in his day? And he got news back to say, no, it's kind of stalled a bit. Nothing's really going on in Jerusalem. Everyone's a bit discouraged and down about. He lays down his career. He takes 52 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, gathering people, energizing them, leading them to do it. And in that process, you think, well, he must have had a pretty easy ride to achieve that in 52 days. The answer is he, he faced massive enemy activity. And I want to look at these five uh, brief fights of faith that uh, Nehemiah fought through. And these are fights that you will have in the Christian life and that we will have as a church. So as we're in this season where God is saying more and actually we're seeing some great things happen, these are the things we need to watch out for. Here's battle number one from Nehemiah chapter four, discouragement. The battle of discouragement, the battle to stay encouraged. So this is what Nehemiah 4 says. When Sanballat, he's a bad guy, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates, the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who's a fellow bad guy, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even if a fox climbed on it, it would break down their wall of stones. And Nehemiah prayed, hear us, God, we're despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. They've thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, and the people worked with all their heart. Isn't it interesting that something as innocuous as discouragement and being talked down a bit actually comes from enemy thought of anger? It says that the enemies, they were angry and they were upset because they saw that Jerusalem was being rebuilt. They saw that God's people were getting their act together and they were terrified by that idea. So they were angry and upset and annoyed but they don't come to Nehemiah and say, we are angry and upset and annoyed. They come and they say, what you're doing is really silly. <laughs> they try to discourage. This is our number one strategy for the enemy in your life. He won't come at you, usually with anger and annoyance and clarity. He'll, he'll just begin to make you think less of what God is doing in your life. Here's what it looks like if you're not a Christian here today. The Apostle Paul said, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And here's what it'll feel like, perhaps, if you're not a Christian. You think The enemy will make you think, you know what, this, this whole cross business, believing in Jesus, it's just nonsense. You don't need that. You don't need that in your life. Just leave it to one side. Here's something that the enemy will do if you've been a Christian a little while. He'll, he'll begin to discourage you. And he'll begin to say, oh, don't give your life to this thing. You know, follow the whole Christian thing, but don't sell yourself out on it. Make sure you've got plenty of other interests and activities in your life. Just make it one of many things. 
The Bible says we have an enemy. He confronted Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. 1 Peter 5 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's interesting. I think sometimes when we think of the enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, and you think, what what is the thing he's doing in our society, in our world today? And, And sometimes you might have a picture of him being somewhere, you, you, might have a, you might think, well, maybe he's at the Scottish Parliament. Maybe that's his main interest. He's trying to kind of create laws that are going to be harmful for people. Or maybe he's up Carlton Hill, kind of just trying to claim our city or something. What I find in the Bible is this, that the devil's primary activity is to discourage believers. It says in Revelation chapter 9, he's described as being the accuser of the brothers and sisters He says he accuses them day and night. This is what he'll do in your life. He'll he'll just begin to make you think less of your walk with God, less of the power of grace at work in your life. He'll come at you and say, well, you don't even deserve to be here. You shouldn't even be at church today because, you know, you're just a rotten scoundrel of a sinner and you don't live the life. He would do all he could in his power to keep you away from the people of God. Discouragement is a perennial weed in the Christian life. And you and I must be careful to root it out. And we do it by resisting him. 1 Peter 5 says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So the counter strategy to discouragement is encouragement. We find encouragement when we meet together as believers, when we hear the preaching of the word, when we speak the truth in love to one another. Nehemiah prayed when he was discouraged. Make sure that you resist this battle of discouragement. Find encouragement in God. Here's the second thing. So, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7, I'm going to call this one the fight for family. So it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, so progress was being made, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said that the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So when they start to succeed in rebuilding the wall, the enemy doesn't just say, oh, you know what, looks like they're going to do it. He turns up the temperature. And this is what, he, this is what seems to happen. So the people are exhausted. He says the, the, the laborers are beginning to give out with tiredness. Do you know the enemy will often wait until you're just dead tired? Because he knows that's a great time to try and bring you down. And Nehemiah does something interesting here. He realizes the people are tired. He, he had a choice of strategies he could make. He, he could have called the fighting men out and said, you know what, we've still got to fight a battle here, so leave your wives and children at home and let's go. 
But he didn't do that. He actually thought, no, the, the last thing we need to do here is kind of separate the families and, and take them out. He, he, he said, no, I want you to fight with your families. I just want to encourage you, if you're a family here today, if you're parenting, if you're married, these are wonderful blessings, but they're tough things. And we need to make sure that we fight the fight of family if you're in that category. I've, I think we've found in our own life that um, there's times when God calls us to, to do stuff and, and the, the kids are at home and Julie's at home. That's often my life, to be honest. But there are times where we, sh- we realize we, don't need, we shouldn't neglect the, uh, the, the life of family at home. And so th- these might sound like obvious things, but years ago, we, this, when, when, when the kids were young, we read the Bible to our kids. We thought we're going to implement that in, in their lives early on. And we did that ferociously for years. The kids would say to us, could we have a different story, a novel or something? We would, no, we're going to read the Bible tonight, guys. And, but then over time, that drifted a little bit. You know, family life gets busy. We had four kids. And uh, Julie came to me and said, she said, wow, she said, I was just quizzing the kids today. And they didn't know how many tribes of Israel there were. She said, I think we've got more work to do here. <laughs> so again, we're back on the strategy of reading the Bible to our kids at bedtime. If you're married, then uh, husbands, wives, think of things that will engage your spouse in their relationship with God. Here's something that we started doing in more recent years. We've started praying as a family at mealtimes. We never used to do that. We used to think, well, that's just a bit religious and all of that. You know, we don't do that. But this is what we find. This is the time we pray as a family. We gather around the meal table and we pray. Um, here's the third fight. It's the fight for unity. Uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 16. It says, from that day on, Half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword on his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So here was the protocol that each of these builders had a sword by their side. They had a personal ability to fight wherever was needed. But they also had this other thing. They had a trumpet protocol, which is this. When, when somebody sounded a trumpet, everybody would gather to that person to fight the battle. So when you got up in the morning, let's imagine you're one of Nehemiah's people there. You got up in the morning and you fixed your hair and your makeup and all of that stuff, and you also put the sword on your side. You thought, looked in the mirror you thought, I'm good to go. And you started your day's work rebuilding the wall and then looking out for enemies. And then some enemies start approaching. And you think, all right, what do I do now? And you think, well, that's good. I've got my sword here. And that's great. And then you start praying. And then you think, oh, 
there's a trumpet. I, I sound the trumpet, and people come and gather. You know, we've talked a lot about small groups today. This is one and the same thing. Actually, being in community is how we practice unity in the church. And when the enemy is getting to you sometimes, he'll persuade you that nobody really cares for you. And actually, you'll find yourself even saying, well, you know, if anybody in this church really cared for me, then God would speak to them about it, and they should know anyway. You've got to understand, in Nehemiah's day, that wasn't the deal. They didn't look out at the enemy and say, well, if God really cares about these enemies, then I'm sure God will send somebody along. They had a trumpet. Here's what you do if you're part of the community of God. When there's trouble going on in your life, you sound the trumpet. You WhatsApp your small group. You say, got stuff going on. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? And as a community, we respond in faith and courage to one another. We had a rallying moment last week when we prayed together as a church. 84 hours of individual prayer. Six hours of corporate prayer. About 50 of us here gathered for that half night of prayer. Praying for stuff that didn't directly interface with us necessarily, but praying for the good of others in the church as well as ourselves. Make sure we fight the fight for unity. Here's uh, fourth, fight for care and community. Nehemiah chapter 5, I'll just summarize this. Uh, the poorest members of Nehemiah's community were struggling financially, and it becomes apparent that the rich were exploiting the poor, and Nehemiah became very angry, but he sorted that situation out. In this room, there'll be two types of people. Some will have more of an orientation towards task-focused. Others will be more people-focused. You can stereotype those things, but all of us here have the bias. Would you agree with that? Some of us are like, we like projects and doing. Other of us here are like, I just like hanging out and being with people. If you're a being person, put your hand up. If you're a more of a task person, put your hand up. Yeah, that's about half and half. And if you're somewhere between those two things, put your hand up. <laughs> yeah, we, none of us like to be kind of pigeonholed, do we? But... Um, so here's the thing. Nehemiah had a task bias, but he realized the necessity of caring for people. And so he made sure he addressed the issues in Jerusalem at that time, and he sorted the bad rich people out and said, look, you're not being generous, you're not being kind, because he realized that even if he had a mission, if he didn't have people, the mission was meaningless. Now, the opposite danger is if you're just people and you're no sense of mission, then it just becomes like a, a family gathering and it doesn't ever go anywhere. And Nehemiah would have been equally frustrated with that, saying, well, this is great, we're caring for the poor, but actually we've got a job to do. We, as a church, want to be those who do great things for God, but we do it in this, within this wonderful thing of relationship in all that we do. Uh, here's the last fight. So the fight for single-mindedness. Nehemiah 6. Um, you find these bad guys again, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. Um, and they, they send a message to Nehemiah. They say, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. 
I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down with you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the answer. So here was the battle. It was the battle of distraction. It was the battle of being single-minded. And so they just kept emailing him again and again and again. They said, Nehemiah, we must meet, we must meet. They, they didn't want to meet. They just wanted to stop him from doing the very thing he was meant to be doing. Let me ask you, are you single-minded or are you distracted? It's something that parents are saying these days about their kids. Kids are never bored these days. Is that right? Because there's always just so many things going on in their lives. There's always so many activities. There's so many gadgets, so many apps, so many devices. And people are saying, that's not a great thing, actually. Because it means we become an unthinking generation. It means we just, as long as we're busy, we don't think. Here's the question I want to ask you today. Are you single-minded in your life in terms of the things that you feel God is calling you to do? Because God wants us to be single-minded. One of the things I'm doing each day at the moment, as I mentioned a couple of weeks back, is I'm trying to start my day with a time of structured prayer. And in that structured prayer time, I time myself for minutes on different things to make sure I'm focusing my mind on the things that I know matter the most. I want to encourage you to be somebody who thinks through what is important, truly important. And in doing so, you're Christ-like. Do you know Jesus didn't just do whatever was in front of him? Certainly he did heal people and help people, but you read this phrase throughout the Gospels, on his way to Jerusalem, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was focused on one thing, that he would go to the cross to die for the sin of the world. That was the one thing the enemy wanted to distract him from. Even while he was on the cross, came the message from a thief next to him saying, come down and save yourself and us. And if Jesus had done that at that moment, if he'd been distracted then he wouldn't have achieved salvation on our behalf. Jesus did what was necessary, and he set his heart, his mind, resolutely to do what God had called him to do. And he calls you to be somebody who follows him and loves him and serves him with all your heart. All these are the work of grace in our lives. We sang that uh, song, Amazing Grace, earlier. It has these words in it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It is grace that's led us safe thus far. It is grace will lead us home. I want to encourage you, as you face the fight of faith, I want to encourage you to keep looking to Jesus, to keep knowing that the grace of God is at work in your life. And his grace is powerful enough to win you through every battle that you will face. And we've touched on some battles today. There's others that we could talk about. But 
He's doing a great thing in your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to thank you today that you are the all-reigning supreme champion. I thank you that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to you. I thank you you're the lamb who was slain but who is now seated at the right hand of God. And Lord, I thank you that you share your victory spoils with us. And Lord, I thank you that you're about a great work in our lives and our church and in your church, right here in Edinburgh and across the world. So, Lord, we're praying, Lord, would you just lead us from victory to victory to victory? I want to pray, Lord, for us just here, brothers and sisters here today, Lord. I want to pray for the challenges we face. I want to pray that you'd give us strength in the battle. I pray that you'd give us help. I pray that you'd give us grace. And I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, like Nehemiah, we'd see great progress for your gospel in our land, for your glorious sake, in Jesus' name. Amen.